to the book of Matthew. And I would ask that you would rest your eyes on verse 9 of chapter 20 in the gospel according to Matthew. When you have it, say amen. amen. And when those who came were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each one a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am not doing you, I'm not doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give you, I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is it your evil your eye, or is it your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Father, we bless you, and we thank you for this day. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Some of you have heard this story before, but I'm going to share it again about a young preacher who lived in Chicago, and he pastored a sizable church, and uh, he was very popular because of his preaching gift. He was invited to speak at one of his best friend's pastoral anniversaries. And as he watched the gifts that were given to his friend from the congregation, he, did, he began to count his blessings in his head about what his church would do for him at his pastoral anniversary. I'm a much better preacher, he thought. My congregation is at least three times as uh, larger than his. And uh, I've been preaching longer than him, so I know that when my time comes around, so he was very celebratory of all the gifts that his buddy got. So his big day came, pastoral anniversary. Several people stood before the congregation as the pastor and his family were honored, and they were standing in front of the congregation, and they talked about how uh, they had been ministered to and blessed and how their families have grown and changed and how they love their pastor. And then the chairman of the deacon board made the grand presentation of the church to the pastor for his pastoral anniversary. And he said, Pastor, we just want you to know that we love you beyond words and no gift that we could ever give would ever pay you for the services that you rendered. 
And they gave him a pair of winter gloves, a scarf, and a scully. If you could see with the eyes of the spirit, you would have recognized that there was smoke coming out of the pastor's ears. But he said all the right things, thank you, praise God, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, and I'm just so appreciative for the scarf, the hat, and the deacon said, Pastor, your head, your neck, and your hands will never be cold again. But silently, he was seething because he felt disrespected and unappreciated. And so he decided to not do a work stoppage, but he wasn't going to give his best sermon, teach his best classes. So he began to slack and preach retreaded sermons, pleasurized sermons. And every time he started to feel a little guilty about it, he would look in the corner of his office and see the scarf, the scully, and the gloves. And he would return to his covert attack against the church for their lack of appreciation. So it happened one winter night, if you've ever been in Chicago. He was the last person to leave the church. Snow was on the ground, on his car, and so he's going to have to remove the snow from his car, go to it, uh, from the building to the car to get it started up. And he realized that he didn't have hat, glove, and scarf. So there in the corner, hat, glove, and scarves. So he didn't even want to put it on inside the church. He gets outside. He puts on the scully. He wraps the scarf around his neck. And then he tries to put his hands in the fingers of the glove, and he can't even get his hands. If it don't fit, it must go. He couldn't get his fingers in the glove. And now he's really furious. They didn't even get gloves that fit. And then he turns the gloves inside out, and to his surprise and amazement, there's a $1,000 bill in each finger of the glove. When the young pastor realized what had happened, he fell on his knees in repentance right in the snow. Unfortunately today, brothers and sisters, this pastor's spirit represents an attitude that is too prevalent among professing Christians. He worked for pay, recognition. He worked for tangible, visible expressions of honor from the lips and services of men. And as was already mentioned, too often, if we're not getting stroked, if we're not getting patted on the back, if somebody's not putting our name in neon lights, we're not getting our 15 minutes of fame, we ain't about it. While encouragement is needed and it's even taught in the scriptures, the Bible says, give honor to whom honors do. We ought to do that. But second-mile Christians serve Jesus because of promise, not pay. They serve because of the promise, not pay. Now, this sermon 
For some of you, it's going to go right over your head. You ain't never heard nothing like this. Because we, we operate in the realm of the, the five senses. We're trying to figure everything out. And so even though we had enough faith, that is the faith, the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. That is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Even the faith that I exercise to say yes to the Lord is a gift from God. But too often, we don't grow beyond the initial saving faith that gives us fire insurance, but doesn't put us in the place where we're soaring with eagle's wings. Listen to Matthew chapter 20, verse 4. Jesus said to them, you also go into the vineyard, go into my field, go into the world, and whatever is right, I will give it to you. So they went. That latter part of the verse just wiped me out. But we ain't going to stop there. We're going to move on. Amen? In the parable that is recorded in Matthew chapter 20, verses, verses uh, 1 through 16, in a parable is an earthly story that has an earth, a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. It's an illustration. Jesus makes a promise to two distinct groups that are in attendance at our church this morning. Uh, those groups consist of those who work for pay, one group, and then there was the other group that Jesus makes promise to that work simply on the basis of a promise. Both groups received promises. One group was based on wages, and the second group, as I've already mentioned, simply took the master at his word. Let me try to help to set this up in terms of some contrast in the Bible, because this is not new. Esau was the oldest son of Isaac, Esau and Jacob. As the oldest son, he, by virtue of his age, was the rightful heir to the promise where you would get the second blessing or the double portion and that person who received the birthright would also be viewed as the spiritual head of an entire generation. You remember the story. Esau came home from hunting one day. And the boy was hungry. And Jacob, being a swindler, hill catcher, con man, he said, you hungry, ain't you? He said, you cooking something? He said, yep. He said, if I give you this bowl of soup, Will you give me your birthright? If I give you something tangible, visible, if I give you something that will meet your temporary need, will you exchange the promise that you can't see now, but it has eternal benefit? Esau said, give me the soup. He decided on the pay. Jacob got the promise. 
Lot and Abraham's servants were fighting over land because their herds had grown too large. And even though Abraham was the patriarch and he was in the position to make the decisions, he said, Lot, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You just make a choice. We got to go our separate ways. And the Bible says that Lot lifted up his eye. He ain't praying. He didn't consult God. He lifted up his eyes and he saw what he viewed as prosperity. He saw pay. And he chose Sodom. When, you, when you're looking with the eyes of the flesh, you're going to see Sodom and you're going to choose a place that God cursed. And so Lot got paid. He got the temporary blessing. But after he left, then God said to Abraham, lift up your eyes. As far as you can see and even beyond, I promise you. And so Lot got the pay, but Abraham, we're still being blessed today from the promise. Somebody say amen. In Luke chapter 16, there was a man named Dives. That's a synonym for rich. The rich man got paid. He, he dressed sumptuously and, and, and every single day. He was lavish in what he ate and where he lived. And he, his bank account was full. But the Bible says one day he died. But at the gate of the rich man, there was another man named Lazarus. He was broke. But he had a promise. That when you put your place, your faith in Jesus, even when you die in this world, that's not the end. And so the rich man got paid on this side of heaven. But when he opened up his eyes in eternity, the Bible says he found himself in hell and in torment. But, but Lazarus got the promise. He was in the bosom of Abraham, the place called paradise. I want you to understand that there are eternal blessings attached to the promise. And we're going to see that the promise is based on the word. If he, if, oh, God, let me, let me not, oh, oh Lord. Mm, mm, mm. Paul was pursuing the pay. He had the credentials. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He could speak multiple languages. He had titles and credentials and prestige and authority. He had pay, but he didn't have the promise. And all of the things he pursued kept him from the, what he needed most, and that was the promise that if you place your trust in the fence, you'll be saved. And Paul said, once I got the promise, I realized that pay is temporal. Because what shall it profit you if you gain everything this world has to offer, but you lose your soul? I want you to understand that the people that are part of this parable are believers. And so this is not an issue of whether they're going to be saved. It's how you're going to behave or why do you behave the way you do now that you are saved? Are you working for pay or are you working for the promise? Because if you're working for pay, if I look at you funny, you're going to be mad and you're going to quit. Mm, let me go on. Oh, Lord. In verses 1 through 4, we have the promise made. Say the promise made. 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning, the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the promise is, if you're going to understand this, this is not of this world. Christians, we are not, we are, we are sojourners. We are en route to our heavenly home, the place where Jesus said, I go to prepare. We're going to heaven. We are, we are in the land of the dying, going to the land of the living. And so the kingdom of heaven is our home. And so the principles in this parable are based on how believers who are heading to our heavenly home should conduct themselves. Somebody say amen. amen. So landowner went out early in the morning, and he hired laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for, the, for a denarius, a day, he sent them into the vineyard, say vineyard, and, and, and he went out about the third hour, nine o'clock, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right. I will give you. So they went. Whatever is right, I'll give you. She may not, but whatever is right, he will. Now, who made the promise? The person in the parable that makes the promise is called the landowner who represents the Lord. Let's say he represents Jesus. He is described as the one who owns the land. He is also the one who seeks out the laborers. The laborers don't come to him. He seeks them. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of us are like sheep who've gone astray. I don't keep searching and searching until I found them. He ain't lost. We are. And so the landowner seeks out the workers. He is the one who determines the payment for services rendered. The Lord decides what your reward will be. And finally, he goes out five different times seeking. He goes out five. First, he goes to the group at 6 o'clock to work. And they work in, in the Jewish culture. The work, the work day is 12 hours, but from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So the first group, the Lord goes out and he seeks them, brings them back, and releases them to work in his field, his, his vineyard. Then he goes out at 9 o'clock. Then he goes out again at 12 o'clock. And then he goes out again at 3 o'clock. And then finally he goes out again at 5 o'clock. And what you notice is that they, they don't all start at the same time but they finish at the same time. All of us have a shift. <laughs> Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it's my shift. Because the night is coming. We're all going to finish this thing unless Jesus comes back. We're going to die for it is appointed unto man once to die. But So they, they all had a shift. They didn't all start at the same time but they end at the same time. One work for one hour, another work for how many hours? Nine hours, another work from, from, uh, from uh, 12 to six, six hours, and then another group work from three to, from three to six. 
got saved at the, on their deathbed, <laughs> worked for three hours, and then another group got in there hanging on the cross. Lord, when you get into your kingdom, got, got saved in the last hour. This day, will you be with me in paradise? You have a shift to work for the Lord. Now, just like the Lord chose these laborers at different times to work for him, he sovereignly picked you and me. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, he says, just as he chose us before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined, predetermined us to adoption as sons in Jesus Christ to himself according to the good, his good pleasure and his will. Why did he do it? According to his good pleasure and his will, he went seeking for us. He selected you and me. To the praise and the glory of the grace of God, by which he made us acceptable in the beloved, we are accepted in God through Christ because he, he chose you. He predestined you. Somebody say amen. How did he accomplish this? How did he end up owning not only the land, the vineyard, but owning us. The Bible says in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. We have been purchased by the shed blood of Jesus, and we're his property, but yet he allows us as his property to work in his vineyard. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, for we are God's handiwork. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were created to serve. You were created to work. You got to shift. But the time, the sand, the hourglass is draining. The shift is going to come to an end. And at some point, the Lord is going to call your day to a close, my day to a close, and we will have to give an account for what we have done with the talents and time and the treasures that he's given to us. He called them all, and they responded, and now they're working in his field. Are you working in the Lord's field? Are you serving according to the talents, time, and treasure that he's given to you? Are you using your temple in such a way that if he called you today, he would be able to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant? Now, notice the promise. There are actually two promises. Jesus says, to the six o'clockers, the six a.m.ers. He gives them a monetary, a, a specific monetary amount promise. He says, now when he had agreed with the laborers for Daenerys a day, he sent them into the field. Three quick observations about that. The offer that the Lord promised to pay them was extremely generous. The fact that the Lord would give us spiritual gifts and die for our sins, the gift, the salvation is a free gift. That's a generous gift. It don't get no better than that. But watch this. So it was an extremely generous gift for the laborers that he sought out. A denarius was a Roman coin that could purchase up to 10 donkeys. It could be it could be converted into 10 denarii. And so when the Lord offered them this deal, it was, it was very, very 
uh, generous according to the time. It was verbally communicated between the Lord and the laborers. I'm going to offer you a denarius to work a day, amount that, is, that can purchase up to 10 donkeys. You can convert it. And so it was verbal. Third thing is the first group didn't trust the master's promise. They required a contract. The Bible says, when they agreed, we hear what you're saying. We ain't, we ain't going to do anything until we got something more substantial. They, they entered into a contract about a specific dollar amount. It was generous, but it was based on what they could see. It was based on something that would satisfy their temporal understanding They agreed. They needed to see something before they would serve. We will serve on our own terms. Aren't we guilty of that? Lord, if you heal me, I'll praise you. Lord, if you give me a wife that acts halfway right, I'll praise you. I've been waiting a long time, Lord. I, I'm going to get my shout on. I'm going to get my praise on when I get the husband that I've been asking you for. We want, let's make a deal with the Lord. Let's enter into a contract. Yes, I believe in tithing, and I'm going to do it when I get my pay raise. You said forgive those who have offended you and and, and, and I'm going to do it, Lord, when she has suffered enough. We always trying to cut a deal with the Lord. He done sought you out by grace, sovereignly chose you, shed his blood that you might have life, left heaven to come to earth for you, and then he allows us to be stewards over the gifts and the talents that are his. And then we got the nerve to cut a deal. I'll serve you, Lord, if I don't have to get up at 8 o'clock. I'll serve you, Lord, and I'll even read the Bible as long as it doesn't ask me to do anything that's inconvenient. We have entered into a contractual agreement with the Lord. And so his word that whatever... Is necessary and best. That's not enough for us. We need to have some kind of concrete proof. Okay, Lord, if you do this for me, that was the that was the argument of Satan. Does Job love you for nothing? If you allow me to touch his family, he will curse you and die. Does he love you for nothing? If you allow me to touch his body and take his riches, he will curse you and die. Job is. Oh, he's, a, he's spiritual and committed to you because of a contract. Job is like all other believers. They're working for pay. Take back with your, your blessings, and they will curse you. They ain't coming to nobody's church. Forget about prayer meeting and, and studying on the... None of that's going to happen if you take back the tangible, physical evidences that I'm going to get what I think I deserve. If they ain't going to recognize me, why should I do it? 
it, it, I ain't going to earn something out of this. Why am I? I don't work like that. What's in it? For me. That was the first group. They said, the Bible said once they agreed, the master's word wasn't going to be enough. He owned the land. He chose them. He didn't have to. But now he got to prove to them that he can be trusted. He promised the second group, the nine o'clockers, the 12 o'clockers, and the other two. He said, whatever is right, I will give it to you. And again, he says the same thing. And he said that in verse 4. Then verse 7, he says it again. Whatever is right. Say, whatever is right, you will receive. Notice the different response. The second group didn't need a contract. The Bible says when, they, when he made the promise, they started serving. All they needed to do is see it in the Word, and they started working. They didn't need a physical contract. The Word, the word, the word was enough. Trusting the Lord's Word simply says, if the Lord said it, that settles it, so I'm going to do it. I don't care if nobody else goes with me. As for me and my house, I am choosing to serve the Lord if he said it. When you're working for promise. You're going to take this word just like you do your GPS and you get in your car. And that thing, one time when it first came out, I was driving to Harrisburg. And before I knew it, I was right in front of a, of a river where I guess the hotel used to be there. But some, it's one thing for the GPS to tell you to go left, to go right, or to go left. And it may be wrong, it may be right, but when the Lord says it, he says, whatever's right. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that the Lord will do whatever's right by you? I, I know you may be weeping in the night right now. It, it may not seem fair, and it doesn't seem like your change is going to come, but he promises whatever is right, that is what I will do. Whatever is right, I will see to it that you receive it. That's my promise. You can go and get somebody. That's pay. And you will pay. <laughs> Be not deceived. <laughs> Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. You sow to the flesh of the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But if you sow to this promise, to the spirit from the promise, you will reap life everlasting. The Lord said it. That settled it. Now... I'm the oldest of nine, and all of them, you know, my, my sibling must be very young. <laughs> and uh, those little rascals, I love them to death. Some of them probably watching right now. They know I'm telling the truth. Soon as my mother would step out the door, they became demonic. <laughs> oh, my. 
And I would get loud, and I would threaten them when I, I'm going to laugh, and I'm going to, you know, I, I mean, I did everything. I couldn't cuss. But I yelled, and I screamed, and they just look at me like I had five heads. And then I say, Mom said, or Daddy said. And all of a sudden, they went from crazy to sober in their right mind. What was different? The authority behind the person who was speaking. I was simply just giving my parents' word. I want you to understand it's one thing for me to say it to you or for someone else to say it to you, but when God says it to you, Why should you trust his promise? Some of us have been in the wilderness for a long time. We don't know what faith is, if it slapped us in the head and then drug us through the mud. All we know that when all those, when those situations happened to us that should have turned us around and we ought to be much different now because it was by God's grace you got out of that quicksand. It was God's grace that got you out of that tree. It was God's grace you don't have 55 kids by God's grace. That it was the Lord who was at work in your situation keeping his promise even when we weren't faithful. He is always faithful. Why should we trust him? Peter says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. The first reason I can trust him is because the Lord, he cares for me and he cares for you. You are intricately not only made, but known there's nothing that is hidden from him. He knows every single detail, every text message, every, 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 every uh, email and face, everything that you've ever recorded, all the thoughts that are recorded on the tablet of your mind. He knows. And yet, he cares. Cast your cares. So he cares for you. Not only does he care, but he commands us to trust him. Trust in the Lord. How much? With all of your heart, we quote that all the time, and lead not to your own understanding. He said, acknowledge me in, all, in, in not some, all of your ways, and I will direct your path. And so the reason I can trust his promises is because, one, he cares for me, but secondly, he commands it. And so when I'm being disobedient to the command, I'm in sin. The Bible said, it is impossible to please God without faith, for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him because the faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That simply means when God says something, even though it is invisible in the realm of the spirit because God has already determined, I can see it as if it's real. He commands it. Oh, there's so many faithless, unbelieving Christians. You're, you're an unbelieving believer. You're in the wilderness trying to get to heaven, living like a spiritual pauper. How do I know? Because you live in fear. Fear paralyzes you 
to trust God. And sometimes what God will do is allow you to find yourself in the revolving door. Every time you come out, you're facing the same challenge. Will you trust me? Will you trust me in that same particular area? I talked to a lady who was driving, uh, doing a training this week, and there's a bridge that goes into, um, what is it, Delaware City. That cranky, shaky, over the Delaware River Bridge, not the new one. There's another bridge. And I got lost trying to find uh, Governor Bacon. That's a nursing home over there. You don't want to be lost in that area. There are a lot of uh, Confederate flags over there. And people believe before there were guns were legal to be on, on display. They believed that a long time ago. And so I, got, I came over that bridge 10 different times trying to find. And I'm serious. You could, when you look, it's like, it, 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 like the bridge is moving. And she said, you know, I was terrified of crossing bridges. Now, I ain't saying I was scared. Okay, but I, I just had to do it 10 times. But by the time I got to the ninth time, I could almost do it with my eyes closed. She said, I finally decided if I'm ever going to become what God wants me to be in the job that he gave me that requires that I cross this bridge, <laughs> I'm going to have to trust him because until he is ready for me, whether I'm in the air or on the ground, my shift ain't over. So the question, is, and Paul says, he said, how can I lose? He said, we have everything in Christ. So if I die, it's gain. If I live, it's gain. We can't lose. Somebody stay with me. And so he commands it. He cares for us. And God cannot lie. God is not a man that he should lie, neither is the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it? And shall he not do it? Or has he spoken? And shall he not make it good? Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. If he said it, he will never go back on his word. I defy you to show me a single example in your own personal life where God ever promised something that he didn't come through on. Now, the, the challenge is you better make sure you didn't call it a promise that God never made. You can't cash that check. That one's going to bounce. But every promise that he made, he will keep it. Why? Because he can, he can, he can, he can. Then the Bible says, nothing shall be impossible with him. Nothing. Jesus told the sea, shut up, and it shut up. <laughs> he told a man who had 6,000 demons, he told the demons to shut up and come out, and the demons obeyed. Jesus went to the tomb of a man who'd been dead for four days. His body was rotting and, and corroded, and he told them to remove the stone, and he simply spoke a word. Lazarus, get up, and death had to let him go. I want you to understand something, that there's nothing that is impossible with God if it's his will. He is the resurrection and the life. 
the promises. One promise was based on pay. The other promise was simply based on the word, whatever is best and right, I'll do it. That's all they had was his word. They went to work. Here are those who pay to play. Here's the first group. The pay, let's say pay, pay. to play group. Here's how they're described in the text. They are contract workers. They only work if you pay them, and they only do what they're paid for. Sound like union, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds like the union. They do what they, they work for pay, and they only do what they're paid to do. I don't care how much trash is in the middle of the floor. I ain't contracted to do that. That ain't a part of my union. I see them falling and slipping and getting hurt and possibly affecting my, my benefits and all that because now we got to pay all these. Oh, but that's not part of my contract. Here's the danger of being somebody who only works what you get. They limit, they set limits on what they're willing to do for the Lord. They're people who are like that. You're not going to do any more than you can figure out. You don't have any faith. What is God stretching you to do? What are you doing as a Christian that if you didn't have the Holy Spirit in your life, you wouldn't be able to do? Some of us are very religious. We know about church. We know about religion. What we don't know about is ministry. We don't know about supernatural power. We don't know about how to just lean on God. We limit, when, you, when you're working for contract for pay, you limit what you're willing to do for the Lord. If you can't figure it out, you ain't doing it. Sometimes God's going to tell you to bless somebody with what somebody just blessed you with. Wait a minute, they blessed me. Why should I give it away? Because God told you to. Somebody say amen. I saw us look up, okay, he, he, he can do that. They limit what the Lord could do through, through and for them. What happens is when you don't trust the Lord when it comes to service and you're waiting for somebody to give you approval and recognize you and massage you, whatever, it need, whatever you need to get motivated, now God can't do through you what he would if you were surrendered. A bike is not made to sit in the garage. But if somebody don't get on the bike, it ain't going to be used for what it was created to be used for. If you don't allow what God has gifted you to do to be activated, it will grow. It will simply rot away because you limit what God can do in and through you. Are you still with me? They were working for temporal gain rather than eternal. Too many professing Christians treat ministry like their secular jobs. We want credit. I'm going back to that and tangible recognition. And here's what happens. Even with people that are, not, none of us are exempt from this. When you get the, a chance in Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 through 14, I'm not going to read those verses. The apostle Paul is visiting. He's a new apostle. And Peter is, uh, he walked with, Peter personally walked with the Lord. And so what Peter is doing is when he's around the Gentiles and the Jews aren't there, he's eating, he's eating ham, eating octels, he's eating pig's feet. He ain't kosher because he understands that Christians have liberty and anything that we pray over, if God blesses it, it's clean. 
But when his Jewish brethren show up, all of a sudden, he's kosher again. Ain't eating no ham, ain't no pig's feet. Get those oxtails away. And so he was being partial. He was being two-faced. And so what he was putting what other people thought about his service above what God said about his service. And so what Paul does, the Bible says, I rebuked him to his face for working for pay rather than promise. Sometimes we need to check ourselves to make sure, why am I doing this? <laughs> what is my motivation? Well, I came to church to get my praise on. <laughs> man, I ain't like that, sir. I ain't nothing. I ain't feeling like no, no hallelujah and that. Man, I ain't feel nothing, but I just felt like man, he was just teaching and teaching and teaching. I was waiting for the brother to preach. But I hear the word of God said that you should be coming to be equipped to do, to do, to do the work of the ministry, the work of the ministry based on the promise of God that is recorded in the word. What promise is God making to you regarding you fulfilling the ministry that he's given to you? They are also competitive. In verse 10, it says, when the first came... They supposed, the ones that came at 6 a.m., they supposed that they, because the others got a full denarius, that they now, I work 12 hours, we obviously are going to get paid more. So they're com competing with the others who came and worked nine hours and six hours and three hours and one hour. When you're working for pay, you're going to see other Christians as competitors, not as your co-laborers. One of you is going to be on the, both of you are on the same boat. The boat is sinking. One person is throwing the water out of the boat, and the other person on the other side, whoa, he ain't going to beat me throwing water out of the boat, and I, I ain't gonna, he ain't going to make me not have a job. So as one person is throwing the water out of the boat, the second person is putting water back in the boat. <laughs> and so both of you are sinking. You're both in the same ship. That's what fellowship is, two fellas in the same ship. And so we shouldn't be competing with each other. We should be viewing each other as co-laborers. Are you still with me? They're complainers. Here's how you know when you're in the flesh and you're working for pay rather than the promise. Here's what they said. And when they had received their pay, they complained against the landowner in verse 11, saying these last men who got saved, they got saved on their deathbed. Some of them lived like the devil, strung out on drugs, white beaters, women breeders, you know, and now they talking about getting into heaven, and I've been living for the Lord all my life. How in the world could it be that they're just as saved as I am? It's called grace. God's unmerited favor. Well, I've been a member of this church all my life. I got a name on the side of the plastic chair. Look, if you look real hard, you'll see it. They coming up in here, and they in ministry, and they got leadership tied. They serving. How could that be? I, no, no, no. no that, it's, it's, it's pecking order. Whoever was here the longest. No, if you do that, the church is going to crash right into the biggest truck. You got to be able to drive. You got to have people that have the skills to do what you're talking about doing. And so they were, they, they were complaining. How could they? If it was up to us, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be doing anything in the church. They wouldn't be doing anything. They wouldn't get paid. So they were complainers. 
pay for play believers complain when they don't get their way. When you're ministering with people, and all of a sudden, the first thing that goes wrong, they start murmuring and complaining. You know that they've taken their eyes off of the author and finish of our faith, who is Jesus. They're clock watchers. Why well, said, we've been working 12 hours. Now, they're working, but they know who worked nine. They know who worked six. They know who worked three. How do you know that? Why are you watching what they're doing at work? It's, if you're working, you, why you, how do you get time to keep up everybody else's uh, time card? I had a group of people in the church, and they were really mad at me. And so what they would do at Bible study at a certain time, no matter what was going on, the spirit could be just flowing and folks stretched out before the Lord. And they would start closing their briefcases. There were about six of them. Literally slamming their briefcases, moving the chair. They all sat on the same row. And they would get up and they would walk out the church no matter what was going on. They had decided that church was supposed to stop no matter what at a certain time. I want you to know that that's happening in a lot of churches right now. There's a one-hour church service. That's all we got time for God. You know, we want one hour worth of God. But so when you're working for pay, when you call yourself impressing God like he needs us and we don't need him, you're going to be looking at, instead of trying to be fed and grow, well, the eagles come on a little bit. I hope this bro don't go too long. But the last I knew, the Eagles didn't score no touchdowns for me. They didn't, they didn't heal me when I got sick. They didn't put no money in the bank for me. I don't know any of them that stood up with me when I was brokenhearted and didn't know which way to go. But the God I serve, who looks, who sits high and he looks low, I want you to understand, he's never too busy. I can call him in the morning. I can call him in the midnight hour. You know that kind of God. Let me hurry up. And move a little. The pay because of promise group in verses 3 through 8. When you get a chance, I want you to go through those verses. The ones who were sought out in the marketplace at 9 a.m. and then 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Here's some characteristics that describe them. They were grateful to be chosen. Said, why aren't you working? Nobody chose us. But you did. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you that you might produce works. In John chapter 2, so just when, when you understand the depth of your sin, and we don't ever fully grasp that, because some of us think we weren't, you know, our stuff don't, no, 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 we were sinners lost, separated from God. But by his grace, he reached out in love, and he captured my soul, and he saved me, and I'm glad about it. I'm so glad about it that one day, one day he called my name. When you're working for promise, you're just glad. Glad to be in the vineyard. They heard the Lord's word. They knew that the Lord had spoken. The question is, did the Lord say it? 
If he said it, that's all I need to understand. If, if he said it, whatever is good and right, that's what I'll do. That's enough for me. Have you come to that place in your walk with God as you're going through the word and he says something about your situation? Is it enough for you to simply say, he said it, I'm going to do it because he chose me. That's like you got on a watch and your watch says, you put it on 12 and it goes back to 5. And then it says, look, knucklehead, I'll tell you when I want to work and when I, no, no, we would, we would take this thing back. The watch don't work because the watch is supposed to do what it's designed to do. It's supposed to obey your, your directions. And here we are, the creation of God telling him after he told us in his word, nah, I ain't doing that. I want you to understand when you go back to those folks who were the clock watchers, oh, they didn't get away with that. Because God says, vengeance, he said it, is mine. There were consequences. Oh, yeah. When you decide that you're just going to turn a deaf ear to the word of God and you're going to be that rebellious and defiant, oh, you're going to suffer consequences. And there were. Somebody say amen. And so they heard the word of the Lord. They believed the word. How do you know they believed the word? The Bible said they went to work. How do you know where your faith is? Your obedience. If you ain't living with what the word says, you don't have any faith. The proof of your faith is your obedience because faith without works is what? It's dead faith. It's not real. When you're working for the promise you do and, and not pay, you will keep serving until the Lord tells you to stop. You'll stay in that marriage until he says, stop. I know it don't make no sense to anybody else. And you, in, in your flesh, you would be long gone. In your flesh, you would have put that thing to death. You would have buried that thing. You would have sent it to space with something. But until he says, stop, you keep on serving. You keep on obeying, wife. You keep on loving that woman as Christ loved the church until the Lord says otherwise. That's faith. Paul says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, understanding that the promises, your labor for him is not in vain. The promise was kept. We're finished now. But he answered and he said to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. You did, not, did you not agree to work for what you could see? Did you understand? Yeah, I healed you, but once you got healed, you're still miserable. You got that special surgery, and you have the side you were, but you still don't like what you see. Because the problem was not your physical body. Your problem was that you were spiritually immature. He said, you got what, we, what you negotiated. You cut a deal with me, and I gave you the temporal blessing. I didn't do you wrong. It's my right when somebody operates by faith, what the Lord will do, he'll give you a crazy blessing. How are you going to work for one hour and then you get a full day's pay? That don't make no sense. We don't do that. But when you believe the word and you obey it, the Lord will just shock you out of your sock. You'll be blessed. I mean, I've seen people so blessed, they start getting a hollering. I ain't talking about winning no lottery. I'm talking about being blessed of the Lord when he opens up the windows of heaven and he says, I'm going to pour down. I'm going to pour down. I'm going to pour down a blessing that you can't receive. 
the Lord will give you a crazy blessing. He said, I can do whatever I choose to do. Bless you beyond what you can even ask or think. You don't even know. You can't take no credit for it. You showed up at 1 o'clock, and you got to eat all the ribs and the potato salad, got to take four or five plates on Brother Tim, and that's your Tupperware. How in the world can you come at 1 o'clock and have everything that and folk not talk about you from the pulpit. <laughs> oh, this verse here, the Bible says, according to your faith, be it done unto you. The Lord will bless you according to your faith. If your faith is just based on your senses, that's what you're going to get. Now watch this. Here's, this, is, this is taught incorrectly. It is not your faith that heals you. It's not your faith that puts the money in your bank. It's the object that you direct your faith to, the authority and the power of the object. I don't know how much faith I need to have to get healed. All I know is I need to believe in the healer. <laughs> He's able. He can do it. I may have a faith the size of a mustard seed. It may not be great faith, but just a little teeny bit of faith. But if I place my trust in him, he said, mountains, mountains will have to move. So it's the object of my faith that brings my deliverance. A little girl was caught in a, a, a five-alarm fire. The only way out from the third floor where she was, she had to jump. And a neighbor, elderly man, saw her in the window screaming and, and crying. And he said to the little girl, jump, I'll catch you. Now, she may have believed that he could catch her. She may have believed it with every ounce and fiber in her body, but her faith was no greater than that man's ability to catch her when she fell. I want you to know that he caught her, and I want you to know that the Lord will catch you because there's nothing, nothing that we need that he won't provide according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus because his promises are yes and they're amen. He'll catch you. He'll catch you. Are you willing to jump? Are you willing to rest in him? Finally, the Lord will elevate you if you humbly said, the first shall be last and last shall be first. When you humble yourself, when you, when you allow the Lord to bring forth your righteousness as noonday, when you allow the Lord to fight your battles, when you allow this mind that was in Christ Jesus to be your mind, he will elevate you. The first shall be last, and the last, he gives grace to the humble. What are you, what are you working for, for pay or promise? The Lord, I, I, I don't learn these lessons easily. I've shared this one before, too. <laughs> when I got out of Dallas Seminary, it took me four years to get over the fact that I graduated from Dallas Seminary. I was one arrogant, puffed up, 
My wife said, I, you were? <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. Remember Christian Stronghold. I remember sitting in the pastor's class. He wasn't there one Wednesday night. And there was a guest teacher. And I guess secretly I was thinking, I should have been teaching this class. Packed house, about 500 folks. I should have been teaching that class. Boy, I don't know what he's talking about. I would never verbalize. I was too spiritual, too humble. I, and so here's what I did. I decided to ask a question that I already knew the answer for, but I knew he didn't. But I also knew that it would open up dialogue. And you ever see, uh, what is it, uh, uh, Wizard of Oz, when the, that the water is thrown on the Wicked Witch and she turns into uh, coffee grinds or something? <laughs> when I asked that question, and the teacher wasn't prepared to answer, he just melted. And the class was going back and forth. Who can answer this a question that nobody in a million years would ever ask unless you're a seminarian? We learn all the answers to questions that nobody ever asked. So I said, oh, I can help you guys out. Let me help you out. I need humble, humble myself. And so I gave the class, and you could just hear a quietness come upon the audience, man, that, I learned something in seminary, Lord. And so a couple days later, I get a call on the phone. Donald Canty, assistant pastor. I said, oh, they finally, I've been in this church for over a year. They never talked to me. They even acknowledged me as a pastor. I, I went to seminary. I'm pastor of the church. They don't even let me sit up front with the rest of the ministers and let my wife put on her big hat, too. Come on now. What's wrong with this church? <laughs> So he calls me and he said, hey, Pastor Benson. I said, now they finally, they got it. He said, uh, you have a pride problem. I'm thinking, I'm the humblest person I know. So he said, let me, let me explain what I mean to you. You intentionally sabotaged the class and you humiliated the teacher et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking, no, I didn't. Here's what the real deal. I'm saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, God, did all the, I'm saying all the right things, no facial expressions, never seen, let them see you sweat. And I'm thinking, they just jealous. Time for me to find me another church. They, they don't know what they're dealing with. I actually had a minister say that to me. You guys don't know what you're dealing with. Yes, I do, Beelzebub. So, <laughs> so I said, okay, he said, and God told me to tell you through the pastor that you need to repent. So I said, okay, I'll pray about it, think about it. And so I left. I don't remember ever being so angry. I couldn't believe that they didn't understand that I'm a humble dude. And so I get home, and the Lord begins to deal with me. He said, if you're not prideful, why is it bothering you? If it's not true, how can somebody knock you down from where you shouldn't have been at in the first place? Where I want you is on your face. 
Why did you ask? I was trying to get recognition. I was trying to get a pat on the back. I was trying to let people know how smart I was. It wasn't about promise. It wasn't about kingdom. It wasn't about ministry. It was about me. So one of the best things that ever happened to me was somebody was honest enough to tell me, Benson, you got a pride problem. Now, I would like to tell you that I find I got it. It never happened to me again. Oh, man, once I got humbled that time, I'm all, I've been humbled. No, I struggle with it all the time. I don't lie to myself anymore and say I'm the humblest person you know. No, I, no, I still have pride issues. But my desire is to please him. I don't want more stuff. I don't want more recognition. I want more of him. I want Jesus. And we need to make that commitment. Chase after him. Let's pray.